Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. Over recent months, a debate has emerged over the cost of the Reserve Bank's large-scale asset purchase program in 2020 and 2021. This was the first time the Reserve Bank has undertaken what's known as quantitative easing, or QE, by buying New Zealand government and local government bonds in the secondary market off banks. QE is a monetary policy tool through which a central bank buys securities on the open market with the aim of reducing interest rates, increasing the money supply and bolstering economic activity. During 2020 and 2021, the Reserve Bank bought $53 billion worth of government and local government bonds. In this episode, we're going to discuss the impact of QE on the public finances. Our guest is Sir Paul Tucker. He's the former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England and is now a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and recently also published a book called Global Discord on the geopolitical contest with China. Paul is also the author of a paper um, relatively recently on this exact topic, which is named Quantitative Easing, Monetary Policy Implementation and the Public Finances. Look, um, hi, Paul, and um, thanks so much to, for joining us and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. Well, Gareth, thanks very much for inviting me to do do this it's a it's a very interesting subject and i am interested to discuss it with you well let's get into it so look um i just note that this episode is being recorded on zoom so it might sound slightly different to normal but hopefully not too much different um just in terms of your paper um paul so that obviously focuses on the bank of england's actions um with quantitative easing or qe but obviously has some crossover relevance to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand as well. Um, I'd like to come back later on to the pros and cons of, of QE itself and the lessons from it. But firstly, can you explain how QE as a central bank monetary policy tool interacts with or actually impacts on the public finances? It's, I think the first thing to say is that the debate that you're, or the set of issues that you're raising um, affect New Zealand, United States, United Kingdom, most of the countries of continental Europe. I suspect Australia, but I'm not um, certain about that. Um, but they manifest, the same underlying issue manifests itself in different ways because of complex local accounting techniques. And it's really important to look through that. So the, the problem or the issue arises through the product of two things. The first is that the central bank buys government bonds from the marketplace and it pays central bank money for the, what it's bought. The second thing is that over the last decade or so, nearly 20 years in the UK in fact, central banks have moved to paying their policy rate of interest on what are called reserves, just deposit balances that banks hold with them. I think they may be called settlement balances in, in New Zealand. They used to be called settlement balances in, the, in Britain. Um, the effect of this is as follows for the public finances, putting all the monetary stuff on one side that if a government issues a bond, let's say a bond with a 10-year maturity, into the market, whether it's held by a pension fund or a bank, whether it's held domestically or abroad, the government will have issued a 10-year bond 
with almost certainly a fixed rate of interest, and it will pay the same rate of interest over the whole 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, the bond matures, um, and unless the government's by then running a surplus, um, it will need to refinance at the new rate. But that bond's no longer in the market, it's on the central bank's balance sheet. And so instead the private sector, more specifically private sector banks, are holding these deposit balances with the central bank and they pay the policy rate of interest and the policy rate changes every month. Does the Reserve Bank of New Zealand meet every month or every six weeks? It's roughly every six weeks. Yeah. Okay, so eight, eight times um, a year. What that means is for the state as a whole, the consolidated state, the government has moved from borrowing, say, 10 years at a fixed rate to borrowing at a floating rate, where the rate floats, it varies, it refixes every six weeks with the central bank's policy uh, rate. This is known in private markets as a debt swap. In this case, swapping from fixed rate to floating rate. Typically, the view in public finance is that the government does well to spread its maturities and spread its interest rate exposure. The greater the proportion of the government debt that is being bought by the central bank, the more government debt, states financing costs, are concentrated in floating rate borrowing. So that means that the government becomes overly exposed to short-term changes in the central bank's rate of interest. So that's the kind of general um, situation. Let me add this to it. This has turned out to be a bad thing in many countries, specifically because of how low world interest rates were during 2020 and 2021 that although it was sensible for governments, I mean, more than sensible, it was completely essential for governments to protect families and protect small firms from the ravages of COVID and economic lockdown during 2020 and 2021, they would actually have done better to finance that by borrowing in the markets because long-term interest rates were remarkably low for states with a good credit rating which includes my own and includes um, yours. Instead, they expose themselves to the path of short-term central banking interest rates. And as it happened, this was just a risk exposure, but as it happened, the risk exposure turned out to be a bad one to have for all sorts of reasons, including the war on the Ukraine and the hit to world energy prices and the hit to inflation around the world. And then the central bank's failure across the Western world, I'm defining you in the standard way of being part of the Western world, which is of course absurd language, I understand that, but that's what people do. Um, because central banks were slow, interest rates have continued to climb. And every time they climb above what was the rate available at 10 years or 20 years in 2020 and 2021. This is a hit to the public finances. 
And that means that there will be lower public expenditure in the future or higher taxes. This is a bigger problem for countries. The greater the central bank purchases um, of bonds via QE, I think in New Zealand it was about 50 billion um, out of a total debt of, am I getting this right, 400 billion or something like that, 450 billion? Maybe yeah, I'm not sure on the 450 figure, but certainly a 53 billion yeah. was the total for QE. So, but, I mean, interesting point here is that obviously when um, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand undertook its, its QE, its benchmark rate, the official cash rate, was at 0.25%. It's now at 5.25%. So it's 500 basis points higher. So I guess those banks and others who have those settlement accounts have seen a, a large increase in what they're being paid for having those deposits with the central bank. Is there a monetary policy justification for paying that full uh, benchmark rate at 5.25% to the holders of these accounts? You don't need to pay it on the whole um, of the reserves. You do not. And, and anybody in the central bank world, formerly central bank world, monetary economics world, who says you do, is just making a mistake. I mean, I was the official who introduced payment on reserves in the Bank of England just over 20 years ago. And we did pay it on the full amount of reserves, but a much smaller amount of reserves. And we stuck with that in 2009, when we started quantitative easing after the global financial crisis. But of course, not expecting quantitative easing to go on for decades um, or more than a decade as it um, as it has. Um, the reason you don't need to is that I don't want to get too technical, but what you need to do in setting the monetary policy rate and ensuring that that's the rate that prevails in short-term money markets is that you need to, if you like, influence the marginal pound or the marginal dollar. And this is best done through a corridor system. So say I've created 100 units of reserves. Could be 100 billion, could be 100 trillion, God help us. Um, and, I, and I decide that actually I'm gonna pay nothing on, I'm making up this number, 90 um, billion of reserves. But for the residual 10, um, I will pay, I will pay the, the policy rate minus five basis points on, on any deposit balances with me. And I will pay, um, I will, sorry, I will, I will charge the policy rate plus five basis points on any borrowing from me. So this is a very narrow corridor. It's a corridor of 10 basis points, which is smaller than this standard unit of change in monetary policy which is 25 basis points. And so the, 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 the market rate will, will travel somewhere in that 10% range around the, the policy rate. Um, if, if, I've, if 10 billion is more than they, than they want, or if the whole, whole 100 billion is more than they want, it will settle constantly at the floor of that. But I will have still have achieved my, my policy rate in the, in the market.
So it's not necessary. It was a simplification before the crisis, and it was a simplification not paying interest on the totality of reserves, and it was a simplification that didn't warrant um, curing in 2009 afterwards. Why? Because market interest, market long-term interest rates, the cost of borrowing for governments at 10 years or 20 years, was in line with what people thought the average short-term interest rate would be over those maturities. Whereas by 2020, 2021, the long-term borrowing rate for governments was way below what any reasonable person, I think I'd almost say what any sane person, thought would be the average policy rate um, over 10 years or 20 years. So that that doesn't that doesn't in that proposition doesn't entail foreseeing the inflationary shock and rates going up to five percent. It's just amounts to saying, well, rates are at, at um, long rates are at zero or one. They were slightly less than one in the UK and in the US. Um, we don't think that the Federal Reserve policy rate or the Bank of England policy rate is going to average 1% or half a percent over the next 10 to 20 years. So the, the settlement accounts that are held with the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, they're obviously held by a range of banks and a few other entities, such as the, the, the New Zealand Stock Exchange and New Zealand Superannuation Fund. Um, now, obviously, as the Reserve Bank puts it, these the account holders can undertake settlements with other account holders, the Crown, the Reserve Bank, and central bank funds enabling the receiver of those funds to have absolute faith in the quality of the funds received. And I mean, it, it calculates the interest for each account holder daily, um, and they receive the official cash rate, which, as I said, is now 5.25%. One of the effects of QE as well was to massively increase the amount of money held in these central settlement accounts. It went from an average of, I think it was just under $8 billion prior to uh, quantitative easing in the COVID period to to peaking at about $56 billion. So uh, it would sort of seem on the face of it that this was a pretty lucrative for the banks and others who held the settlement accounts. Is that correct? Broadly, yes. Uh, I mean, it, it, it depends whether they pass it on to their customers. Um, so basically, the banks are sitting on this, this large pile of cash with the central bank, and suddenly that's paying a healthy rate of interest. And depending on one regulatory thing, what I'll, which I'll come back to, um, but certainly in the UK and in the United States, the, the large amount of cash that effectively the central bank has imposed on the banks hasn't constrained them from doing other things. So it, so to the extent that they receive a decent rate of interest on this cash, it's like a windfall, unless they pass it on to customers. And so it would be passed on to customers notionally in the following way, that as, as the central bank raises interest rates, as they pass that through to borrowing customers and to deposit customers, the customers, let's say the increase in interest rates is one percentage point. Borrowers would be, the cost of borrowing would go up by a little bit less than one percentage point. 
the the rate paid on savings deposits, short-term savings deposits, even current account deposits, would go up by a little bit more than one percentage point. In other words, I mean, there's a state of affairs under perfect competition where the, the banks wouldn't keep any of the windfall and it would be passed on entirely to, to customers. And which customers benefited, whether it was borrowing customers or, or depositing customers, would depend upon which can move to other banks most easily, which is probably borrowers rather than depositors. But but who knows? That's a fact of the um, the world. If, on the other hand, they the banks um, don't do that, but they just hoover up for themselves the um, the extra percentage point on these cash balances, then some combination of shareholders and management are going to be better off. Um, so the earlier part of the conversation is saying the government's worse off because of this, or the state is worse off, which means taxpayers, all of us. And, and I'm now saying, well, either many members of the public can get it back through higher deposit rates, slightly lower loan rates, or alternatively, the banks keep it for themselves, and then the government's a loser, the taxpayers a loser, shareholders and management are winners. And that depends on how competitive conditions are in the in the banking um, sector. And there are some there are some crude ways of of tracking broadly what's going on. And and what are they? Well, you would look for whether banks' net interest margin is increasing. If it's increasing, um, kind of more or less in line with with what you'd expect from their their core business, plus a higher rate of interest on the balances at the central bank, then then you could kind of infer that um, that maybe they're not passing it on. But you want to take a closer look. When I made this point at a dinner, I think in London, possibly in, in the United States a few months ago, someone made to me the um, kind of rather rather robustly, not impolitely, the point, well, actually, it's good for banks to make good profits in good times because they can be putting that away for, for a rainy day. And my response was, well, that's a perfectly reasonable point, in which case we can track that part of it by whether we're seeing... Um, banks' capital ratios rise, and we're not seeing banks increasing their dividend payout ratio or, or increasing share buybacks or, or resuming share buybacks. So there's recently been a bank, a big global bank, that has resumed um, share buybacks. And the newspaper articles I've seen said they've been making lots more money out of their core business. And I'm thinking, well, is that just the windfall being paid to their shareholders? And the point of saying that is not that that's conclusive, but that you can kind of track um, whether that's what's going on. And the reason it matters is because staying away from the monetary finance, monetary policy stuff in all of this, there is a debate about whether removing interest on most of the reserves would be um, introducing a tax on the banks. 
and that depends a bit on whether they're passing on the um the benefits to their customers if they're not then removing it wouldn't be a tax on the banks it would be with removing a windfall to bankers so we need to make a distinction between a tax on banking which is what which is a legitimate concern uh, that i set out in in my paper um published last autumn on the one hand a tax on banking and on the other hand withdrawing a uh, uh, withdrawing a windfall from bankers finance ministries should be weighing that in in balancing the microeconomic issues which are about taxation efficiency which is ambiguous but can be tracked in the way i've just described um on the one hand and on the other hand the the unambiguous benefit to the public finances um and therefore to future taxes or future spending depending on the shade of government um on the macro um side now the reserve bank of new zealand is now undertaking what's known as quantitative tightening so they're selling $5 billion worth of their um, QE government bonds annually to New Zealand Debt Management, which is the Treasury unit that manages government debt. What impact does, does quantitative tightening have on the cost of, of, of QE to public finances? And um, should central banks look to complete QT as quickly as they realistically can? That's It's very interesting what you described. Did you say that... The Reserve Bank is is part of its QE is selling the bonds to the debt management organization. Yes, to the government's debt manager. Yes. Oh, so it's one, one arm of government selling the debt to another arm of government effectively. Well, that's just accounting. That that's not what's happening and is not what is meant by QT um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Here in the in the United States. QT means selling the bonds back to the market. So the way that it's being done in New Zealand is is not crazy. Um, I probably sound too English in saying that. I, I I don't mean in England's relationship with New Zealand. I mean the capacity of Englishmen and women to make everything sound frivolous. Um, in that. Otherwise, what you have is you have the central bank issuing bonds to the selling bonds to the market and the debt office selling bonds to the to the market. But what would matter is if on Monday, let's say if Monday in week one, the central bank sells some bonds to the debt management office in New Zealand, and then the next week, the debt management office or the next week or the week after that, the debt management office itself sells the bonds into the market it's the second thing that matters because of for the public sector as a whole then that crystallizes a loss for these things one should one should look through the fact that treasuries and debt management offices and central banks are separate agencies in government and just consolidate them because the losses or profits will get distributed around through various accounting conventions that ultimately have a bearing on tax and spend. Uh, that's what matters. Whereas when you sell them back to the public or into the marketplace, then that's the public sector as a whole doing something. 
So that's a little by road I didn't know about in advance. But if that's what the debt management office in New Zealand are going to do, so what's going to be happening is that they'll be selling them at a loss, a capital loss for the state as a whole. I think I, I, I should have checked this before we came on, but I, I think my, my recollection is I think they might be um, cancelling them um, rather than selling them back to the market. Um, but, when they, but when the central bank sells them to the debt management office, does it sell them at prevailing market price? Or does it? Um, that's a good question, and I, I don't actually have the answer um, off the top of my head on that. No, that's, um, that's okay. You and I aren't experts in, in every detail. What matters here is whether the government crystallizes a loss. It's certainly incurred a massive opportunity cost. It and that and there's nothing to be done about that. It it I would say all of these governments should have after the terrible um, situation in markets in March April 2020, they should then have tried to fund their their um, they should have at least tried to fund their COVID interventions in the marketplace because that would have been less risky and as it turns out cheaper than borrowing from the central bank um that's an opportunity cost whether or not the new zealand method involves realizing a loss matters a lot to to this for the central bank um it it doesn't much matter what matters to the central bank is ultimately the withdrawal of of reserves Selling selling the the bonds to the to the debt management office doesn't affect bankers' reserves. There ultimately has to be a transaction with the private sector, which banks with New Zealand banks, to affect bankers' reserves. And I guess that I guess that happens actually, because otherwise, um, what does the what does the debt management office pay the central bank with? Well, it buys them, so I guess it cash. transfers. Yeah, cash, I guess. So it may be, it may, it may. If the debt management office holds balances with the with the banks, it may be running its own balances down, and that will reduce reserves, and therefore both sides of the central bank's balance sheet um, decline. Anyway, for, for the people listening. Um, not you or I, but somebody needs to plod through the accounting uh, um, of this, both as for the double entry bookkeeping on the central bank's balance sheet and the double entry bookkeeping on the debt management office balance sheet, and then think about whether any loss is crystallized in the public sector, um, as opposed to just accepting the um, opportunity cost that was incurred in 2020-21. Okay. I can clarify that subsequently too. Uh, some some of those issues we've been discussing there, because I, I do realise we put you a little bit on the spot with uh, a process cool. you haven't been following, and I'm a little rusty uh, on on some of the key points there. Now, just back to the the paper that you you published, um, you suggest that central banks' remits could be altered to encourage the implementation of monetary policy in ways that least adversely affect public finances. I'm just wondering how. Do you think that could be done? Well, it, it's, for example, um, say we get near the zero lower bound again in the future, not this episode, some episode in the future. 
and they're and they're contemplating doing quantitative easing again well then they should probably be removing moving to a reserve system um that can uh, work as well in stabilizing the overnight rate of interest in line with their policy rate um but without the same degree of effect on risks to the public sector balance sheet to the public to the public finances in in the uk and i think this is a good measure in 1997 when the bank of england was made independence um the debt management function was moved out of the bank of england into a debt management office i talked to graham wheeler um, who used to run your debt management office a great deal about that during the late late 90s and early and early zeros and between the bank of england and the government an accord was reached which basically said the government's debt management strategy and implementation will not interfere with with the bank of england's monetary policy and over a quarter of a century on i think well actually it turns out it might be necessary to constrain the central bank when the central bank is indifferent between it needs to provide some stimulus it's indifferent between three ways of doing it it should choose if it's truly indifferent it should choose the way that interferes least with the with the portfolio debt portfolio choices of of the of the government and this 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 kind of constraint on the central bank makes sense by which i mean is is worth considering only if there is a high degree of confidence that the central bank truly is independent if the if the, if if there's if there's uncertainty around that there's some danger in this because the central bank would then say well actually we're indifferent between three things and we're 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 going to do the one that most suits the government whereas in fact privately they might not really be indifferent to the three things that they just want to stay chummy with the government but but if if where the central bank is truly independent and how to achieve that and how to track that is a separate set of issues which we haven't got time to discuss in those circumstances i think the constraint i air is a reasonable one because this is going to cost all of our countries an awful lot of money and you know it's in in my country the health service is under pressure and all sorts of other public services are under pressure and on the other on the on the kind of more right side of politics people are concerned about tax rates well you know what i'm describing isn't good for tax rates and it isn't good for public services it's just waste unless it's, it's passed on to customers i guess treasury here estimate estimates that the direct there'll be a direct fiscal loss from the reserve banks qe of 10.5 billion dollars which is the total expected increase in interest payments directly resulting from the qe but it says this is partially offset by the fiscal benefits of stabilizing the new zealand government bond market and providing economic stimulus obviously in that march april uh, time, uh 2020 time of heightened yeah. uncertainty so that's their estimate currently um so but on, on the just just to I mean, I wasn't kind of in the market, as it were, during this period, so I can't be certain. But 
The point about the value of stabilizing the markets in, in March and April of 2020, which was, which was warranted, um, is quite separate from the need to carry on holding the bonds for years afterwards and to continue buying bonds during the autumn winter of 2020 and during 2021, which is certainly what went on in the Northern Hemisphere. In my, in my book, um, this is without hindsight, and I said this at the time, um, you'd stabilize the market during March and April, and then you'd, when things had, had, had calmed down, you'd sell those bonds back. And actually, you'd make money on that, probably, because you, you tend to buy during stress, and you'd sell back when, when the stress, bond market stress, um, had alleviated. So that such market maker of last resort operations, um, when they work, and when unwound fairly quickly, will tend to be profitable. An issue that's come up, often come up in discussions about quantitative easing in New Zealand is why not just go down the path of direct monetary financing? Why not just have the central bank issue money directly to fund the government's programs? Or uh, why not have the one arm of the state, as in the Reserve Bank, you know, dealing directly with the debt management arm? Why go through third parties being private sector banks to do this? Um, I'm just worried, wondering, you know, I'm curious about your your thoughts on on this, um, I guess, method, which has not proven to be the one that we've obviously taken here. I think it's it's I think it's an important question um, because it goes to something that a kind of bigger set of issues um, in emergencies, and I mean in emergencies where the government needs the cash urgently. I, I do not act. Uh, greatly object to the central bank lending the money um, directly to the government and that being completely avert and the 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 virtue if there is one of it being avert is that there will then be great pressure on the government to find itself finance itself in the market again as soon as it can and repay the central bank so just as i think the central banks did the right thing in stabilizing government bond markets in the spring of 2020. I wouldn't have objected for what it's worth in central banks lending directly to the government during that period to tide them over um, in an emergency and all openly putting pressure on the governments to, as I say, to, to repay as quickly as possible. But what that raises, and this is the broader issue, is this, is mo this wasn't necessary and is most unfortunate. The words quantitative easing and QE have ended up being used um, for almost any central bank purchase of government bonds. But actually, a central bank can, can purchase government bonds for one of perhaps five reasons, purposes, different purposes. And each purpose need, it needs its own regime which maybe you can't do that, but if you can do that, it's own governance process and transparency process. So the purposes are um, to stimulate aggregate demand to meet an inflation target. And that's what I would reserve the label quantitative easing for. A second one would be to stabilize the government bond market um, during stress. We could call that dealer of last 
dealer of last resort or market maker of last resort. I prefer the second of those. A third would be to provide emergency financing to the government temporarily. A fourth would be to, to buy bonds from particular people in the marketplace to get liquidity to them, rather than just lending against the bonds, buying the bonds, to get liquidity to them as quickly as possible. And a fifth would be um, to provide help to intermediaries in government bond markets. Now, some people listening are going to say, well, I wouldn't want to do all of those things. That's fine. The, I mean, actually, I could probably add other possible purposes. And you could, what one then has to do is go through scratching them out or, and where one hasn't scratched them out, have a separate regime for them. And I think what happened in 2020 was three things were going on at once. There was an attempt to stimulate aggregate demand, um, which I don't think was terribly sensible because aggregate supply was being shrunk by the lockdown. There was an attempt to stabilize government bond markets, sensible. And there was an attempt to get emergency finance to the, to the government. And I think just getting greater clarity around this. Of course, on the particular thing you raise, uh, monetary financing of the government directly, that there is a risk that that would compromise the independence of the central bank. And so you, you need to leave it um, with the government choosing and the central bank deciding. Um, but this comes back to the independence of the central bank. And ultimately, there's governments can override um, central banks, particularly in parliamentary democracies, because they can just pass a piece of legislation that does so. But that's in the open. And we need central bankers who force politicians into the open when they want to overrule the central bank, rather than doing it behind closed doors. So really, all this leads, as do so many things, as Ronald Reagan said, personnel is policy. And with central banking, the, the integrity of the appointments process and the, the resilience of the central bank governor and the central bank governor being part of a team of almost equals with deputy governors who, if you like, exist in, as figures in their own right rather than as, as subordinates. So we started off talking about emergency financing and we end up talking about the governance of central banks. And actually they can't be separated because otherwise it will always suit the government in a whole to look to the central bank for help. And that's, that's where our parents' generation was. Look, that's a very interesting discussion. Oh, look, I, I guess I, to, to sort of wrap it all up, I, I was really interested in just talking to you about quantitative easing and, and how it has panned out over the last you know, 10 to 15 years now. Because um, obviously you were at the Bank of England when the Bank of England first went down the QE path in 2009. And now, obviously, that was the global financial crisis era. The UK did bail out some banks. Things were very, very serious in the UK at that time. So I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, what sort of were the initial problems the Bank of England was looking to solve, issues it wanted to address? Obviously, QE has lasted a lot longer than was initially planned. So what do you think are the key lessons for central banks from QE and do you think that there's a, still a future for QE is it here to stay or might central banks move to other tools in future crises 
certainly think central banks need to have a deep think and they need to have, to have it in a pretty open way and an open-minded way. If you go back to 2009, and actually I'm still comfortable with what we did in 2009, but it matters that the banking system was falling apart. And what that meant was that um, banks were, private banks were delevering. And so their balance sheets were shrinking. And so public and business deposits with um, the banking sector were falling. So there was monetary contraction. And certainly some of us at that time in the Bank of England, this was true of the governor, Mervyn King, this was true of me, we saw QE partly as expanding broad money. Because what you do, so we bought, we didn't buy government bonds from the banks. We in the main bought government bonds from pension funds and life insurance companies. And the first round effect of that is their deposits with UK banks went up and they don't want to hold on to those deposits. And so that feeds into the transmission mechanism. So we certainly thought that it was going to bring down yields uh, um, and that was useful, but we also saw it as expanding um, the supply of money. In the United States, because the Federal Reserve doesn't like talking about money, which is a bit of a mistake in circumstances like that. Um, ben Bernanke and his colleagues got attacked from, um, I suppose, the economic right for expanding money, and it was all going to be terribly inflationary, which was, which was, and it, and it wasn't. It might have been later, but it wasn't at the time. And we, we faced, we discussed that, and I. And, we, and Mervyn King was brilliant. He said, well, we need, to, we need to, to explain, and he did this on television really well, that actually, if you, if you create too much money, that will lead to inflation. But actually, if there's monetary destruction going on in the economy, that what we're trying to do, you, you would get deflation. And what we're trying to do is offset the monetary destruction. There's monetary destruction underway in the private sector we're offsetting that with public money creation. So those are very different circumstances than the ones that prevail some years later. And I think the, 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 the best response to the underlying spirit of your question is, how long do we expect this to go on? I mean, I don't know, half a decade or so. I don't want to be held to that particular answer. But if someone had said this is going to be, it's, there's going to be even more outstanding after a decade, I think we would have um, wanted to put some markers down about how our successors should conduct themselves. And by the mid-teens, at least in the um, Northern Hemisphere, where economies hadn't recovered as well as everybody hoped, partly because of the Euro area crisis, which I think was a terrible blow to the path out of the GFC. Um, but for whatever reason, by then, by the mid-teens, the burden needed to shift to fiscal policy and away from monetary policy. And it's very hard for a central banker to make that happen. Well, actually, you can't make it happen. And, and all you can do, uh, and Mario Draghi, I think, for once made a mild mistake. He went to Jackson Hole and said, there needs to be more fiscal stimulus. Um, and he got attacked for that publicly. 
and privately for kind of speaking above his station, if you like. But you can do something else. You can go out and say, so what we're doing won't make much difference anymore. We, we're not the ones that can now revive the economy. We've done what we can. And if you like, something I learned from a very great central banker, Eddie George, years ago, you can never take on the politicians, but in a way you can surround them. And in that sense, you can surround them by proclaiming your own nakedness. And you have to be prepared, forgive the, forgive the silly metaphor, you, you have to be prepared in a kind of grown up, very considered way to frighten the markets a bit, not for the sake of it, but accepting that, that otherwise governments will choose to sit on their hands and you, will, you the central banker, because you're the second mover, you will do more and more and more and more. And at best, it has little effect eventually. And at worst, you store up an inflate, a monetary overhang that, that adds to inflationary pressure. And I do think that over the last two to three years, it, in some way that's impossible to quantify, it hasn't helped that the monetary overhang um, possibly was created during 2020. 2021, because it signaled that central banks cared less about inflation than they did about other things. It's important for a central banker that it's, it's vital that people don't think you're crazy on inflation, but it's also vital that they think that you care about that above all else, because that's the purpose of the independence, which is, a, which is bestowed by the legislators. It's not something that central banks have a right I think that's a, a great point at which to, to finish. And um, look, thank you so much for your time. That, that is Sir Paul Tucker, former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, who's now a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of a book called Global Discord on the Geopolitical Contest with China. And I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm just making a small addition to the end of this podcast to clarify a couple of points discussed with Paul. Firstly, in terms of the Reserve Bank selling the government bonds to New Zealand Debt Management, or NZDM, NZDM repurchases them at market value. The bond sales from the Reserve Bank to NZDM are being funded via an increase in the government's borrowing program to cover the expected $5 billion worth of annual sales. Secondly, the government bonds bought by the Reserve Bank through its QE or quantitative easing program aren't in the Crown accounts. Treasury says this is because there's effectively no borrowing or asset to a third party outside of government entities. The most recent Crown financial statements show gross government debt of $138.1 billion at the end of February, which is equivalent to 36.3% of gross domestic product. Paul says by buying bonds from the Reserve Bank at market prices, indemnifying the central bank's realized losses and refunding in the market, the government effectively crystallizes the opportunity cost of not funding its important COVID measures in the long-term bond markets when, instead, it effectively financed itself at short-term rates from the central bank.